And uh, it was a place that uh, over the years that God uh, confirmed a call to, to do what I'm doing today, and that's to preach and uh, to be involved in um, vocational ministry. And that's just a place where there's been, I don't know how many men and women who God has touched in a miraculous way. Thank you again for those who uh, participated in the fireworks uh, selling. And I just wanted to let you know the net profit after all of the sales were accomplished and all the bills were paid was just a little over $1,800. And uh, I remind you that on July the 30th, a week from Saturday, we will be gathering together at 2 o'clock in the afternoon here to celebrate the life of, of Silas Smith, who went to be with Jesus a few, a few days ago. And uh, he's got it made. And we're going to celebrate that fact. And we're going to celebrate the legacy of his life here on that particular day. Pray for Sri Lanka. Pray for the Ukraine. And tomorrow is the fish distribution right here. Um, so those of you who have been involved with that ministry, you know what to do. If you want to be involved with that ministry, show up tomorrow sometime. And somebody will tell you what to do and where to go and how to do it. Are you ready? Next Sunday will mark the anniversary of the Sunday that I began the series of messages in the book of Romans where we talked about how, how Paul is teach, teaching us about life in Christ. Um, all years gone by. How time flies when we're having fun. And uh, except for a few Sundays, we've been in the book of Romans. Father's Day, Mother's Day, uh, seemed like Easter, maybe Christmas. And uh, maybe a, a week or two when Tony filled in for me, he might have digressed from Romans. I know a couple of weeks he covered Romans for me um, in Romans chapter 8 because everybody wants to preach in Romans chapter 8. Uh, and he got to preach in that one. But um, we finally come to the final chapter. Nobody said hallelujah. <laughs> it won't be the last message, but it's the last chapter. We're getting close to, to the end. Um, Paul began winding down the letter and began his conclusion in the section that we looked at last week in the 15th chapter. Uh, um, he begins to uh, just share things from his heart. And as we looked at that passage, and as we continue to look at the 16th passage, or 16th chapter, <clears throat> we're going to see things about the heart of a missionary. Paul was a missionary, and you're a missionary. Anyone that's on a religious mission is a missionary, and you've been commissioned to be on a mission to go preach the gospel to every breathing creature. To the ends of the earth. And we all have been given a position in the body of Christ to be a part of fulfilling that great commission. And as we looked at, the, at Paul's life, this man, a great man of God, is a great example to follow. In fact, he is the one who said, follow me as I follow Christ. We looked at some aspects of his heart last Sunday morning. I just want to review those by just mentioning them real quickly. Number one, heart of a missionary is a heart that sees life and ministry as worship. Paul saw every aspect of his life as worship. 
giving glory to God, giving honor to God, doing God's will, speaking God's word. And we all need to live with that mindset. I offer myself, my body, Romans chapter 12, verses 1, offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of worship, is one of the translations says. Your reasonable act of worship. Worship God by the way you live your life. The heart of a missionary is a heart that gives God credit for everything. That gives God credit for everything. From a human perspective, the Apostle Paul has some incredible success in ministry. It would have been easy for him to become puffed up with pride. But he declared, whatever has taken place was because Christ was in me, working through me, and I was in Christ. Paul said it's all about Jesus. Number three, the heart of a missionary is a heart that has dreams and visions of the advancement of God's kingdom. Of God's kingdom. Plans and, and visions. He had plans and visions for his future. When he's writing this letter, he's in Corinth, waiting, uh, traveling weather to go towards Jerusalem. He's told the people at Rome, I've been wanting to come to you, but I keep running into places where I need to preach the gospel, and that's deterred me. But I'm coming because I'm going to go first and take the offering I've received to Jerusalem. You pray that the Jews won't kill me and the Christians receive me. And then I plan to come to you, and then I'm going to go to Spain because I want to go someplace where no one else has preached the gospel. I want to share it. That was his passion, to share where no one else had shared. He said, I've preached all over Asia Minor. I need to go to Spain. Number four, the heart of the missionary is a heart that prays passionately for the kingdom of God to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Paul was a man of prayer. Every one of his letters, he talks about how he prays constantly for the people of the church, that they might know God and the power of his resurrection, that they might know the power of the kingdom of God. As we go into this final chapter, we're still seeing the heart of the missionary Paul, the man who was able to say, follow me. But before we begin reading the first verses, Verses that we often skip over. This is one of those chapters when people are doing their daily Bible reading and they look at it and they see all the names that we cannot pronounce. You just slide on right by and thank you, Jesus, for all those people. But before we read the list of people, I want to set the, the atmosphere for the context of Paul's letter. I want to sing for you a, a song, or try to. The lyrics are not exactly contextual, contextual to what Paul is saying, but the essence of the song is what Paul is saying in the 16th chapter. Packing up the dreams, got plenty. 
A lifetime's not too long to live as friends. There's some of you here that I've known all your life. A lifetime's not too long to live as friends. This morning, for the title of the message, I have chosen, I have chosen a phrase that came to my mind 20-some years ago when, it, uh, when I led it a charge to change the name of the church. For 50 years, we were known as Faith Temple Full Gospel. Some people still call it Faith Temple. I still get checks made out to Faith Temple, and they still go through the bank. Thank the Lord. But, you know, in the 50s, when this church was planted, there were all kinds of evangelical Christian churches that had temple as part of their name. The church down the street, Calvary Community, was Calvary Temple. That's what I knew as yes. I don't know if there's anybody left in that congregation old enough to remember those days. Uh, but things have changed in the culture. Temple used to be associated with Jerusalem and the presence of God and the Ark of the Covenant and God coming. But there's some cults that kind of robbed the meaning of it. And I'd have people across town, what church do you pastor? And I say, Faith Temple, are you Baha'i? Or are you Mormon? And I said, not quite, neither one. Far, far away from that. So to get away from the confusion, I prayerfully led some people through a years-long process. We talked about it, we prayed about it. We came to the conclusion we want to leave faith in it. And I felt like I wanted family in it. So after the vote of the people involved in that, Faith Family Christian Center became the name of this church back in about 2021. Um, during that time, I was reading all these leadership books and church growth books, and they said, you need to have a not only in the name of a church, but you need to have a mission statement. What's your mission statement? And then they said, after you have a mission statement, you need to be able to put it into one concise sentence that sums it all up. I don't know that anybody remembers the mission statement that we wrote, but if you read the bulletin, and if you read the letter I send out every week, it's on the top of the stationery. If you're not getting the letter, that means they don't have your address, which means you haven't filled out the friendship registration book with that information that's underneath of the chair. But you know what it says? Building relationships for time and eternity. Building relationships for time and eternity. Christianity is all about relationships. It's about being related to the Father through Jesus Christ and my faith in Him, being part of the family of God. And then it's about loving the family of God, loving my brothers and sisters on the journey to there. And John says, if I don't love my brother whom I see, then I really don't love God who I don't see. So building relationships is what it's all about. In chapter 16, Paul 
highlights relationships and his ministry and his life. And we come to point number five when we're talking about the heart of the missionary. Paul had a love for people. Paul had a love for people. This chapter, as I've already alluded to, is, is a list, a list of names, a long list. This, reading, this week I was reading, and I, I read the testimony of a, a man who's retired from, preaching, or from teaching in seminary, a class on preaching. And he warned his students. He said, when you're preaching from a text, avoid list. Avoid list, because lists can become very boring. And the scripture's full of list. How many have read Genesis? How many have read Chronicles? Or Numbers? Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob. Jacob begat Joseph. And Joseph begat Ephraim and Manasseh. And on down the line you go. And you go from, and, and, and Luke you got, and Matthew, you got 14 generations, three times that are listed, all of these people. And uh, in the list today, there's names that I don't know how to pronounce. I'm going to fake it. Unless somebody else wants to come and fake it. But, um, but God put these lists in the Scripture because He wanted us to consider something about them. And, and, and while... Some of them, you have a name, and you only see that name once. We have no clue about anything about them except the period of time that they lived in and, and maybe the country they lived in. But what this list tells me is this. All the names in the Bible tell me that each and every individual is important to God. Each and every individual is important to God. There's names there that they were not superstars. They were not the upper 1%. They were not the, 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 the rich and beautiful. But God knew their name. He knew where they lived. He knew what they needed. God knows where you live today. He knows your name. He knows everything you need. He knows more about you than Google does. You are important to God. You are important to God. Back to Paul. He has an overflowing love for people in his life. In chapter 16, the first 24 verses, he will say, 17 times, the words are there 19 times, there's two other guys that greet, but he said, greet, 17 times, greet these people, greet these people, greet these people. There are 33 names mentioned in this chapter. Nine of them were with Paul in Corinth, eight men and one woman. There were 24 names of people in Rome that he addresses, 17 men and seven women. Two households mentioned, the families, that, and then two unnamed women the mother of Rufus, and the sister of Nurus, as well as some unnamed brothers that were hanging out with a, a group of guys he named. 
It's quite a list of people in Rome, considering Paul had never been to Rome. He'd never been there. He longed to go there, but in his travels, he had come in contact with many of these people. We have this feeling sometimes that these people just lived in a square mile someplace. Um, but these people got around. They didn't do as fast as we did or do. I mean, in a couple hours, we can fly five or 600 miles. They would take weeks, months to go from point A to point B. But they traveled. And, and they were able to travel better than they'd ever been able to travel before because the Romans were in charge. One of the things that the Roman Empire brought to the world was a highway system so that trade could take place from different nations, so that they could bring the riches from the countries that they had conquered. They made highways so that their army could intimidate nation after nation as they marched from Italy and spread out all over that part of the world. It was no accident that when God said in the fullness of time, God sent his son to be born of a virgin during the Roman Empire. Because what happened when they began to persecute the church? The church was able to disperse all through Asia Minor, all through Macedonia, all through Europe, because the roads have been put there to make travel easier for them and the gospel to be taken to all the people. No extra charge for that extra information this morning. So, let's start in verse 1 and 2. Letter A, we need to have a heart ready to make new friends. Have a heart ready to make new friends. Do not become content with us for and no more. Have a heart ready to make new friends. Romans 16, 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Phoebe appears to be a very good friend of the Apostle Paul. And he says to this church, I want you to welcome her with open arms. That was pretty much traditional in those days when somebody was going to travel to a new place that if somebody knew people on the other end, that they would write them a letter of recommendation so that hospitality would be shown to them when they got there. And so he says, I want you to welcome Phoebe. I've sent her, make room for her in your church family there. And notice how he speaks of her, he uses four words. He said, our sister Phoebe, our sister Phoebe. I don't think he was talking about a biological sister. He was talking about the fact that when we are in the family of God, we are brothers and sisters. When we grew up in this church, we were taught to call adults brother and sister so-and-so. And there were people that even though I was a grown man, had a title of pastor, I didn't call them anything but brother, hedge, 
until the day he went to heaven. Um, he's got kind of, Brother Ma was a superintendent of Grace. His first name was John. I never once called him John to his face. We were brother and sister. That's what we were taught. And because we're part of the family of God. And he said, she's my sister. Not only is she sister, he said, she's a servant. She's a servant of the church. She's a servant of the church at Sancria. He said, she's a saint. She's a saint. Now, the Catholics kind of messed up the concept of saint for us. It had to be somebody who's dead. Had to be somebody who they had two or three miracles credited to them and through their prayer life. And then they will bestow on them the name of saint. Well, the way I read the scriptures, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've become a new creature, you become adopted into the family, you become a son, a daughter, and you be called a saint. She said, she's a saint. She's committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and a patron. Sister, servant, saint, patron. The whole church throughout the church ages can be grateful for the faithfulness of this lady from Sancria. It's my understanding that Sincrea was a port of Corinth, about nine miles east of the city. Evidently, there had been a house church um, spring up in Sincrea, uh, right outside of the city of Corinth. And she was a servant, or the literal word here is she was a deacon of the church at Sincrea. A deacon. Someone involved... Now, in our modern culture, in many of the different denominations, a deacon is somebody who sits in authority and rules over the church. That's not the concept of deacon that we see in the book of Acts. The deacons were chose to serve the people, to minister to the people, so that the pastors, the elders, could study the Word. And uh, they were the ones... And she was the kind of person who's ministering to the needs of people. She was a deacon in the church of San Korea. She was a person who had been personal help to the Apostle Paul. And he said, I'm aware she's helped a whole lot of other people. He had a great deal of trust in this woman, Phoebe. For she's the one who takes the sacred letter of Romans all the way from Corinth to Italy to Rome. The King James Version of your Bible, if you have a King James Bible and you look at the bottom uh, footnote at the end of the chapter, after verse 27, it will say, written to the Romans from Corinth, sent by Phoebe, the servant of the church at Sancria. Some of it will have more King James language than that, but that's the essence of what it is. So, since 1611, we've understood that she's the one who carried this letter. Paul said she's been a patron. I looked up what the word patron means. And the first meaning is it's somebody who helps others financially. And many people believe that she was a successful businesswoman who out of the blessing of the finances that God gave her, she blessed people and she blessed Paul and his ministry financially. And some people believe that she was on her way to Rome on a business trip. Paul discovered she's going on the business trip. Take this letter, you and the entourage that goes with you, People didn't really travel alone that much for safety reasons. And, and go with her and, and you take this letter. 
And he said to the people that he writes to, when she gets there, if she needs anything, you give to her what you can give to her. Minister to her needs. By the way, it's quite remarkable how many women are listed in the New Testament in places of serving in the body of Christ. And uh, that was something that Jesus brought because before Jesus, the culture was very, and to the Middle East to this day, in many nations, it's very chauvinistic. Um, to the Jews, men, before Christ, she was just another piece of property. I have read that Jewish men would have prayed in those days, thank God I was not born a Gentile or a woman. I thank God I wasn't born a woman, but not because I'm chauvinistic. It's just I don't want all the hassles they have to go through. <laughs> Having babies? No, thank you. <laughs> Back through the letter. Jesus Christ brought dignity to the ladies. And we need to have respect, ladies, in, in the places as they serve the body of Christ. And where would we be if they didn't? In verse 3, Paul begins greeting people that he knows that are in the church in Rome. Verse 3 says, <clears throat> Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponitus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. <coughs> Excuse me. Prisca, or in other place, uh, places in the scripture, or in other translations, you'll read the word Priscilla. Priscilla and Aquila. And the times that they're listed in the scriptures, she's listed first for some reason. I know if it's ladies before men or she was the dominant individual in this particular relationship, but they were special people in the life of the Apostle Paul. You first read of them in Acts chapter 18 when Paul went to Corinth. In Corinth, it says Paul met Aquila, a Jew from Pontus, that had recently left Rome with Priscilla, his wife, because of the edict of the emperor Claudius, demanded that all Jews leave the city of Rome. He didn't want any Jews in the city. And uh, so, because Priscilla and Aquila had a, a trade, they were tent makers by trade, as was Paul, they moved to Corinth. And Paul, it says, stayed with them for a period of time, and they worked together. This was one of the ways that Paul uh, facilitated his ministry. He went to a lot of places and did not receive any offering from them, lest they think less of him. So he built tents along with Priscilla and Aquila and sold them for money. While he was teaching in a synagogue there in Corinth, the Jews in the synagogue rejected him flatly. And you can read there in Acts chapter 18, he said, all right, your blood be upon your hands. I'll go to the Gentiles and any Jews that want to come my way. And it appears that for the next 18 months, he stayed in Corinth teaching about Jesus. 
and many believe that it was in the home of Priscilla and Aquila where the church met. At the end of 18 months, the three of them went on to Ephesus. When we get to Ephesus, um, Paul leaves Priscilla and Aquila there after he's been there a short time, and, and he makes another circuit someplace. And they go to the synagogue on Saturday, and they are hearing this incredible orator speak about Jesus. And he has a lot of facts about Jesus, but he doesn't have them all quite right. So they take Apollos aside and say, you, you're talking about John the Baptist, but there's one who superseded John the Baptist, and Jesus came with another baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and you need to know about that. And Apollos is instructed by Priscilla and Aquila in a deeper understanding of the gospel. He decides that with this new understanding, he wants to go to Corinth. And when he goes to Corinth, Paul returns to Ephesus. And Paul begins to minister in Ephesus and, and begins to, to preach. And for the next couple of years, he's, he's preaching in Ephesus on an ongoing basis and enjoying a very fruitful ministry. And too many people got saved. That's the way I read this story. You say, what do you mean? Well, there was a silversmith and a whole bunch of silversmiths in Ephesus that made little silver statues to the guard Artemis. But when people gave their hearts to Jesus Christ, they came to understand that idolatry was wrong, and they quit buying the silver statues to worship at home. Their business was going in the tank. And so there was one of these chief silversmiths who got the union together to come against the Apostle Paul. And then you read the story, a riot breaks out, and Paul's not even there at the moment, and, and they begin beating up Christians. Paul said, I, I, I want to go and take care of this. They said, no, you're not going. You will take care of this. We'll handle this. Most scholars believe this is when Aquila and Priscilla put their neck on the line. Now, when it says they put their neck on the line, it was probably literal. It would not have been uncommon for somebody to take a sword and just lop their head off. There are countries in the Middle East where they do that today. He said they put their neck on the line for me. That's how much they cared for me. After Claudius was no longer the emperor, he got murdered. Nero became the emperor. Priscilla and Aquila make their way back to Italy and back to Rome. And as we read this letter here, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers who risked their necks, and greet also the church in their house. It appears that wherever they lived, their home was also a home for a church congregation. They were those kind of people. It, there were no church buildings in those days. It wasn't until Constantine became the emperor of Rome in the 4th century that churches began to spring up when he said Christianity will be the only accepted church that there is. Before that, there was house churches, park churches, wherever people gathered. Uh, 
And so Aquila and Priscilla, or Priscilla and Aquila, however you want to put their names, they, they were partners in business with Paul, and, and, and they um, had churches wherever they went. Their house was a church where they went. Paul said the whole church owes them a great debt of gratitude for their partnership and king, kingdom business. Verse 5, part B says this, Greet my beloved Eponatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. That's Asia Minor, probably the area of Turkey, probably close to the city of Ephesus. Paul, when he first went there, this was the first man, to Paul's knowledge, to respond to the, the, the invitation to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Paul, a man who had a passion to go where no one had to go, this man had a special place in his heart. He kept track of him over the years. I don't know how he ended up in Rome, but he's in Rome with Priscilla and Aquila. Verse 6, greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Have you ever tr tried to keep track of the Marys in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? It gets a bit confusing. We don't know who, which Mary this is. And, and the interesting thing about the Jewish culture is I have read that many, 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 many families named their daughters Mary because it went back to the days of Moses and his sister Miriam. In Hebrew, Miriam, when you take it to the Greek language or the Aramaic language, it's Mary. And I have read that there were many families, Jewish families, that would name more than one of their daughters Mary. There would be Mary the bigger and Mary the smaller. That's literal translations that I read. Mary the older, Mary the younger. Now, I don't know what it'd do to your psyche to be called Mary the bigger. Um, there's lots of Marys. And the thing about a lot of the Marys that we read about in the Gospels are just like this Mary. She was committed to working for the body of Christ. Committed. She worked hard for you, the church at Rome. Verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles. They were in Christ before you. Adronicus or Adronicus and Junia. Scholars believe perhaps they were a couple. Paul refers to them as relatives. We don't know if he's talking about kinsmen in the Lord or whether one of them was actually a blood relative of his somewhere along the line. What we do know is they're part of the family of God. And he says they were in Christ before him. They were in Christ, which means they could have been people back in Jerusalem when the church was birthed. Before the day that Paul, was, when he was Saul of Tarsus, stood and watched Stephen stoned to death. It could be that if they were really his relatives, that they may have been partly responsible for Paul having an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Somebody was praying for Paul to get saved. One of the Wesley brothers, 
Methodist church said, God does nothing except an answer to prayer. And I thought about that numerous times. You came to Christ because someone was praying for you. If you've not yet come to Christ and made Him your Lord and Savior, I want you to know someone's praying for you because that's what the Holy Spirit does. He lays it on the hearts of other people to pray for other people, and God responds to our prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. He also says they were faithful in spite of persecution for their faith. They were faithful in spite of their... You say, where did he say that? You see that where he said they were fellow prisoners. They were fellow prisoners. Now, we don't know what jail that they were put in. Scholars who've re re researched the history of the first century and the life of Paul have concluded he was probably incarcerated seven different times for preaching the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if you've read it, you remember Paul said, I've been shipwrecked three times. I've been beaten with, I've been all of these things in the middle of that. And he says, and in prison frequently. Frequent flyer miles as a preacher of the gospel because he preached the gospel. And he said, they were fellow prisoners with me. I've been told you get real close with your soulmates. Paul said they're all known to the apostles, well known. He could have been referring to the original 12 in Jerusalem. Or he could have been referring to the founders of the church, the planters of the church in the city of Rome. Greet my kinsmen, my fellow prisoners. Verse, six, or verse 8. Great, greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Great Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. I thought about just playing my Bible app on my phone into the microphone for that verse. Ampliatus is a very interesting name, not simply because it's interesting to try to say it, but I have read that there's a highly decorated tomb in the catacombs in Rome that has a single name on it, this name, Ampliatus. Single name like this often implies a man was a slave in the Roman Empire. The slave, they gave him just a single name because they didn't want to be totally associated with the family. But as the tomb is ornate, it indicates that he was a Christian and that he was highly respected by the leaders in Rome. Though we cannot be positive, it's very likely that that tomb in that cemetery holds the remains of the man that Paul called his beloved in the Lord. Though a slave, he had a great ministry in the body of Christ. Urbanus and Stachys, fellow workers, loved by Paul. I'm going to look at the name of Apelius. Apelius. In the NIV version, 
it says, Apelles, tested and approved in Christ. The ESV just said approved in Christ. But the NIV tested and approved in Christ. Then the NIV, the 2011 version, says this, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. I pause on that because I think that would be a great epitaph to be on the marker that marks my grave. Tested and approved of Christ. We have no idea what this man went through. But Paul did. And he said, whatever that man has gone through, he's come through on the other side with the approval stamp of God himself. Oh, to live to hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Test and approved of Christ. The household or the family of Aristobulus, that family was most likely connected to the emperor. Now I'll try to give you the short version of how that took place. William Barclay, who likes to give a lot of background, historical background in his commentaries, tells us that Aristobulus may have been the great-grandson of Herod the Great, who resided in Rome, had connections in Rome, had connections with the emperor. Aristobulus himself was behind the scenes, was, but was a close friend of the emperor Claudius. When Aristobulus died, his household, in other words, his slaves and servants, became the property of the emperor. By the time that Paul writes this letter, Nero's the emperor because Claudius has been assassinated. But the servants and the slaves that have been Aristobulus now belong to Nero, which means that there were men and women of the family or the household of Aristobulus who knew Jesus Christ, who are working in the palace underneath of the authority of the emperor and his henchmen. Add to the household of Aristobulus the name of Paul's relative in verse 11. Greet my kinsman, Herodium. Greet those who belong to the family of Narcissus. Scholars looking at this Herodian, a Jew, Paul said to my kinsman, might be because he's a Jew, might be because he's a family member, but perhaps he had been sold into slavery, working underneath of the, uh, the authority of, of Herod's line, and Herod's line had been sucked in by the emperor. Could he have been part of the house of Aristobulus or Narcissus? The most famous Narcissus of the first century was a former slave who became a freed man. And he became the personal secretary of the emperor Claudius. History tells us that this Narcissus became a very wealthy man because of his position. He was in charge of the correspondence that would come to Claudius. If you wanted to send a letter or correspondence to the emperor, it went through the hands of Narcissus. 
history tells us that to get it from Narcissus' hand to the emperor required greasing the hand of Narcissus. Now, you know what greasing the hand means, don't you? That's not Crisco on the hands. That's putting silver and gold in his hands. And depending on who you were and what you wanted to say to the emperor, the price would vary. And history says he became a very wealthy man under Claudius. When Claudius was assassinated and Nero came to the throne, history also tells us that Nero's mother, Agrippina, conducted a purge in the city of Rome. And she forced Narcissus, or had Nero force Narcissus, to commit suicide. Instead of executing him, they made him execute himself, and Nero did that to several men in the city of Rome. But that palace, the palace of the emperor, was infiltrated by these men who had family members who received the gospel of Jesus Christ. There were believers close to the emperor before Paul ever made it to Rome. Before Paul was ever chained to, there were believers, and they were a powerful bunch of believers as they infiltrated the culture of the city of Rome. Paul's list of people go to greet goes on. To a group of hard-working women, he says this, greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. If you read the NIV, it greets the Tryphena and Tryphosa who've worked hard in the Lord, then greet Persis who's worked hard in the Lord. The SV just didn't become repetitive. They all worked hard in the Lord. Tryphena and Tryphosa. I learned something by researching their names that I would not have known. Scholars believe that these two women were probably twins. And they believe that because of their, but the names that were given to them. Their names are quite interesting in meaning. They mean dainty and delicate. Dainty and delicate. It's kind of ironic that these dainty and delicate, and scholars believe that they were probably aristocrats who had great wealth, that Paul said they were working hard to serve the body of Christ in Rome. He commends them for their hard work, their committed efforts. Dynamite comes in small packages, is what came to my mind. Working dynamos. Tryphena and Tryphosa. Which brought me to a sidebar note that's very important. Being part of the church was never intended to be a spectator sport. God gave gifts to everyone to work to build up the body of Christ, that the body of Christ might grow and the body of Christ might mature in faith. Everybody has a part to play. 
over the last three or four centuries, it's become a spectator sport. I'll move on. Verse 13, greet Rufus, chosen of the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. I love the stories that are hidden in the list in the Bible. And for me, this is another one of those stories that's very interesting. Most scholars of Bible history believe that the most likely this Rufus is the brother of Alexander and the son of Simon of Cyrene. You say, who's that? Well, if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke about the crucifixion of Jesus, after they beat him and mock him, and they give him the cross to carry. It says that they commissioned a man who had come from North Africa, probably for the Passover, a man who'd never met Jesus. They commissioned him to carry the end of Jesus' cross. Simon, son of Cyrene. And in Mark's gospel, when he talks about he said, the father of, Al of Alexander and Rufus, Simon, was commissioned. Because he wrote the Gospel of Mark years after this has all taken place and the church had been planted, the implication is that everybody in the church in Jerusalem, everybody in the church who had been in the church for a while, they knew who Rufus was and Alexander Alexander, there's a name, guy in Alexander in the, who tries to stand up and defend Paul in that riot in, in Ephesus. We don't know if it's the same Alexander or not. Good chance this Rufus, though, is the one whose dad carried the cross. And their lives were forever connected to Jesus Christ and faith in him. That's kind of a Paul Harvey the rest of the story. And he said, not only greet Rufus, but greet his mother. We don't know what it was, but at some point, Paul said, when I needed a mother, she mothered me. Now, he was a grown man. Or maybe it went way back before he was ever converted, and they were in Jerusalem when he went to be get treated or trained by Galileo. I don't know, but he spent some time with him she mothered him. Went through in my mind is there might have been a day that she prepared him a meal and she said, no, I'm not hungry today. And she said, you eat that because you need your strength. <laughs> I don't know. Verse 14. Great Asnancritus, Phleon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. Anybody else want to take a shot? <laughs> These appear to be a group of Greek businessmen come to Rome for the purpose of business. But they also may have been a host to another house church when he says, and the brothers who are with them. Greet those guys. Greet those. And he names them all by name. I don't know if he met them in Greece. Knew they were there. I don't know. But he, he acknowledges their presence. 
And then the final house church that Paul mentions is in verse 15. Great Philologus, Julia, Neros, and his sister, and Olympus. And all the saints who are with them. So that's probably another house church. I decided not to talk about any more of these people. There's some more interesting stories, but you can look them up somewhere. Paul loved his brothers and sisters in Christ. So what he has to say about his affection for the body of... I want you to see what he has to say about his affection for the body of Christ when he writes to the church at Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7. We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. This is a total different picture than I see Saul of Tarsus on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians. I mean, people are afraid of him. But now that he's been filled with the love of Jesus Christ, he has a love for people. He treats them like a mother nursing children, affectionately desires. He had this strong passion for the people of the church of Jesus Christ. As I read through this, one of the takeaways that I took from this is this. The church in Rome is a picture of the diversity and unity of the church of Jesus Christ. It is a picture of the diversity and the unity of the church of Jesus Christ. He listed men, women, Jews, Gentile. Mentioned people that were most likely slaves and those who had ties to the aristocrats. I'm reminded of what he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 and 13. For just as the body is one, has many members, and all the members of that body, though they are many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. That's more than symbolic language. It's mysterious and literal, spiritual truth. When we are born again by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, we become part of the body of Christ. He said we're baptized, we're submerged into one body, the body of Christ. Going back to chapter 16 in Romans, he said he uses this phrase, in the Lord, in Christ. I challenge you to go home today and Look at the first 13 verses in whatever translation you have and mark that phrase, in the Lord or in Christ. I did it in my Bible. And I started in that first verse and I went down to the 13 verses and 10 times. I read that a hundred times in the Gospels or in the New Testament, in the epistles, we read these words, in Christ. 10 of them are in these 13 verses in the Lord, in Christ. In the Lord, in Christ. I want you to understand this. We are in the Lord, and the Lord is in us. We are in the Lord, and the Lord is in us. A lady by the name of Sue Kidd wrote a book 
titled When the Heart Waits. In the book, she tells a story about her three-year-old son named Bobby. I don't know why she called him Bobby, but maybe his name was. In those days, Bobby was afraid of the dark, and Sue tried everything she could to appease his fear. She left the light on in the hallway. She got him a night light, but none of that helped. He would awaken in the middle of the night and cry out in terror, fear of the dark. At that particular time, she happened to be pregnant with her second child. And one night as she's holding Bobby, trying to comfort him, he touched her belly. Bobby asked, Mommy, is it dark inside where my little brother is? Yes, she replied, it's dark in there. He thought about it a moment. He said, he doesn't even have a nightlight, does he? No, not even a nightlight. Hey, I have one more question. Do you think my brother is scared all by himself in there? She replied, I don't think so, because he's not really alone. He's inside of me. And it's the same with you. When it's dark and you think you're all by yourself, you really aren't. I carry you inside of me too, right here in my heart. That was the last time Bobby was scared. But it revealed something to Sue about her relationship with God. She explained it was this way. First, God was up there. Then, God was all around. And then I began to see that God is also in me. And now, most surprising of all, I found that I am, I am and always will be in God. He's in me, and I am in Him. We are literally and spiritually in the Lord Jesus Christ right now. In your notes, there is a typo, and I thought it's quite ironic that I missed one letter that you have to fill in. There is no, the note says, there is no safe place. That's not what it's supposed to say. Put an R after E. There is no safer place to be. We can rest in this truth. Jesus is our best friend forever. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. If Jesus is my friend, who's going to be against me? Do you know that Jesus has never been and will never be defeated? Never. I hate to lose. So it's a no-brainer for me to be a follower of Jesus Christ because I want to win. And I'm going to win. There might be bumps and bruises along the way, but I am not going to lose because in Jesus Christ, I am a winner. Because he has never been defeated, he never will be defeated because he is a name above every name. Hallelujah. Because I'm in Christ and Christ in me, I can choose to be what Paul chose to be. Here was a man who was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, concerned about being perfect in the manners of the outward law, concerning about impressing men. 
and God with how good and upright he was. But he became a people person. Romans 16 testifies the fact that Paul was a people person, and so should we be. Several years ago, there appeared an article in the Grand Rapids, Michigan paper about an 87-year-old widow who appealed to the state to place her in a nursing home. Most of them don't want to go, but she said, please send me. She said, I don't blame people for not taking time to see me. I'm not very interesting. Everybody I knew is dead or moved away. I'd like to talk to somebody who's alive. I'd like some company. The article went on to state that except for a shopping trip once or twice a month, this widow rarely left her apartment. Her typical day began at 6.30 a.m. with breakfast of toast and coffee. Then she would water her garden in the kitchen, which consisted of five small potted plants. After tidying up the place, she would spend the rest of the day looking out the window, her day ending about 8.30 when she had a light supper and went to bed. Now, that might be a sensational story written to pluck on our heartstrings. But about the same time, Another writer wrote this, America is one of the most vast, terrifying anti-community. The great organizations to which people give their working day, the apartments and the suburbs to which they return at night, are equally places of loneliness and alienation. Protocol, competition, hostility, and fear have replaced the warmth and affection which might sustain man against a hostile universe. And he wrote that 20 years ago before COVID and isolation that has so separated people. While it might seem to be a gross exaggeration, it's far more true than we'd like to admit. There are almost 8 billion people living on this planet right now. 8 billion and millions of them are living in loneliness, feeling like nobody cares, nobody knows me, nobody wants me. Paul said, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. We must be people persons. We must remember people are important. We're commanded to love God and to love our neighbor. And in the house of the Lord, we're to love one another as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Which brings me to number seven. We're to be affectionate. We're to be affectionate. Charles Swindoll, in one of his books, though he's a man I've never met, he's one of the mentors in my life. I read his books, his writings, I've listened to his preaching. Um, a great orator, a great pastor, a great teacher. He told about a time after a Wednesday evening prayer meeting when a big, burly, six-footer type guy holding a motorcycle 
helmet in one hand, came up to him and said, there's something I've always wanted to do to you. And he became a little nervous. The guy laid down his helmet and he wrapped up Chuck Swindoll in a big bear hug. Now I'm not saying that we need to make a spiritual thing of giving each other a hug. I'm not against hugging. Paul said give one another a holy kiss. I'm not even suggesting you do that unless you're in Ukraine or in the Middle East where they kiss one another. Just sincere eye contact. Just sincerely listening. A touch. Paul was a people person who had a deep affection for brothers and sisters in Christ. If you want to greet one another, holy kiss, go ahead. But don't kiss me. <laughs> if you want to hug me, that's fine. Number eight. We reap what we sow. We reap what we sow. In all of Paul's letters, he expresses love for the people there, in every one of them. He was a giver, but not only was he a giver, he, he received love from people. They gave it back to him. In Galatians chapter 4, the last part of verse 15, he, he makes this statement to these people, I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Now that's pretty intense love. Gouge out my eyes and give it to you because you need it. In our lesson text in Romans 13, Rufus' mother has been a mother to me. You receive what you give. Mark 10 the disciples were saying to Jesus, now, what's in this for us? We've left our jobs. We've left our families. We're following you all over the country. What's in it for us? And he said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and land. Oh, he should blot out this next line with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. God will not be a debtor to you. As you give. Seems to me there's a scripture with the same measure that you give. He said it will be given to you, pressed down, shaking together and running over. We like to use that in terms of giving offerings and tithes, but it has more than that. It's Whatever you sow, that's what you're going to reap. The richest people in town are the people who love people because they have people who love them. If you had all the money in the world and didn't have anybody to love you, you would be so empty, so dissatisfied with your life. But if you have friends, family who loves you, you can be content with whatever you have or don't have because we were created for relationship here and for eternity. 
Are you ready for eternity? The place of damnation, there'll be no relationships, outer darkness. But the place that Jesus went to prepare for those who call on his name, there'll be unending relationship and fellowship forever and ever and ever and ever. Homework. Application. On your notes, I put a sentence. I thank my God for I thank my God for all my remembrance of you, and then put a name there, and then another name, and another name, and begin to prayerfully make a list of those people that you're going to thank God for the what they've imparted into your life. The love you have for them or the love that they have for you. Another name. And hold on to that list. Keep that list. If you have to move, keep the list. If you have to get rid of your fridge and your couch, that's okay, but keep the list. Thank my God for all my remembrance of you. Hold on to that. When your ministry here on earth is over and you're crossing over, take the list with you. Now hang with me just a moment. A little bit of preaching that's not real doctrinally correct, but yet there has a great truth to it. When you get to the gate and St. Peter comes to meet you, and he sees you list in the hand. He said, you were born naked. You'll come here naked. We'll take care of clothing you. Whatever you got, you don't need it. What is that in your hand? Just some names. Let me see it. It's just a list of folks that I worked with and who worked with me and helped me in my life. Let me see it. It's a group of people that if it weren't for them, I'd never made it. I want to see it. Finally, you give it to him. He smiles. He says, I know all of them. In fact, on my way here to the gate, I passed them. They were painting a great big sign over the street and it said, Welcome home. Stand with me as we sing another song from yesteryear. Yes, I'll bring it. Thank you.